Today on episode number 273 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I share about engaging learners in large classes. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I was recently doing a workshop with our faculty at my institution and got some pushback afterward about whether or not some of the approaches being recommended would actually work in larger classes. In recent years, I have tended to teach smaller classes, but certainly in my time there in the 15 years have taught classes that were up to 65 people. And some of you are laughing like, wait a second, I teach 200. I spit at your 60 people. (laughs) And I certainly know that it has to be different from 60 students up to hundreds of students, but I have given workshops at institutions for hundreds of people and also am today going to spotlight some people that do it all the time in their teaching. So I'm excited to share their expertise with you today. When we talk about class size, you know, it, it comes up often, you know, what is the relationship between class size and student learning? And I think my short answer to that question is it's complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of questions to explore. So the answers to what can we discover? Does it matter class size? Does that affect learning? And I would say the answer is yes, no, and sort of. And particularly if we were just to go down to the most granular level, it's hard to really ascertain what's happening if we see the learning outcomes differing or even the preferences differing based on class size. But one thing that certainly does emerge is that it really can come down to a lot of times the larger classes not engaging students as well as the smaller class size. And I think we've all experienced that, whether we've sat in lectures ourselves and experienced the boredom that can sometimes ensue, or whether we have found ourselves being the people who inflict that same boredom on others, a lack of engagement, a lack of connection. And so today is all about how can we make our classes more engaging when they are larger. And I've got three experts to share with you. The first one is Michael Sandell. I have talked about him before on the podcast, but not necessarily in this context. He teaches one of the largest and most popular classes at Harvard University. It's called Justice. He also, by the way, wrote a book by the same title that is wonderful. And the Justice class has become so popular that Harvard now offers it on the edX platform so any of us can take it if we were so inclined. In fact, we could also just watch the videos that I'm mostly referencing today, which are viewable on YouTube without needing to enroll in the class. I assign Michael Sandel's YouTube videos when I teach a business ethics class, which I've shared prior on the podcast. And I actually put it inside of the Canvas Learning Management System. There is a video tool which has recently been renamed Studio. So I put it on Studio and actually get to have when Michael Sandel poses a question, he employs the Socratic method 
quite amazingly on his classes. And so when he poses a question, I have my students just respond as if they were there in the room with him, with all of his hundreds and hundreds of other students. So here are some of the approaches that I observe that Michael Sandel uses in teaching this justice class. This is, again, an actual on-ground class in Harvard Hundreds and hundreds of people in a giant lecture hall, but when you watch the videos, you feel like you're in the lecture hall and you also feel like it's a much smaller venue than you would normally think just because he is so engaging. Here's some of the things he does. He asks open-ended questions and he gets us as viewers or he gets his students to first reflect on our own about how we might answer a question. So he asks us to reflect, and it's kind of like a version of think, pair, share, but it's more nuanced and more sophisticated than that. But he gets us involved by just asking ourselves the question first before he has anyone share to the broader class. And there are microphones throughout his giant lecture hall, and students are invited to come up and and share their thoughts on those microphones. So a next item that I notice he does is he invites students to predict what happens next in a story or what might be the result if a specific choice is made. And you might remember James Lang talking about this when he came on the podcast to talk about his book, Small Teaching. So the act of predicting can enhance our learning. And so Michael Sandel does that a lot as he's telling his stories. He asks the learners to predict what happens next. Sandel's slide decks are very simple. He doesn't overwhelm students with a lot of text. That would produce too great of a cognitive load where I'm trying to read his text and I'm trying to hear what he's saying and my brain just wasn't designed. None of our brains were designed to do both of those things at the same time. So he uses minimalistic slide decks. And he starts each class session by asking students to recall what was discussed in the previous session or to bring some of those same questions that he piqued our curiosity about in the last question forward to the present one. And back to James Lang again, James Lang has some wonderful guides in the Chronicle, which I'll link to in the show notes about those first five minutes of class, but we can do a lot to draw the learning from last time into this time when we employ some of these techniques. Another thing that Michael Sandel does is he calls students by name even in such a large class. Now, he does not appear to know every single one of their names, but as they're talking, he asks them for their name as they're introducing their answer to one of his questions that he has posed. And so once the person has shared their name, throughout the rest of the class session, he regularly refers back to the same person much later in the same class session. So he's clearly paying attention and letting that person know that he cares enough to learn their name and to be able to refer back to their answers, which he shows are valuable to him by going back and and emphasizing the student's answer and using their name once again throughout the session. He is amazing at painting pictures in students' heads through excellent storytelling. In fact, all of the people I'll be sharing about today, the experts, are such I was going to say such gifted storytellers, but I think we're probably selling ourselves short to think that storytelling is something you either have or you don't. Storytelling is definitely something that we should all be thinking of with a growth mindset, something that we can get better at. 
I was just at our children's back to school night with Dave the other night. And one of the things that came up in our son's second grade curriculum is that they are learning how to tell better stories. And so there's a whole page in the handouts that we received, as well as on the wall of the classroom, all these transition phases. And then this happened and you won't believe what happened next. And then something surprising happened. Or so, I, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but I chuckled a little bit that they're teaching that in second grade, but they're also teaching the rest of us in a book about podcasting I've been reading. I've been reading a graphic novel about podcasting. I'll be linking to it in the show notes as well. And it has, just in the recent pages I was looking at, talking about how when we are telling stories, especially in audio format, that it can be helpful to give clues that there's something I want you to listen to next. So things like the same kinds of transitions they recommended to our son. And then I was just so surprised by what happened next. And I was so sad by this thing that happened. You're, you're giving these clues that what you're about to say is something someone really should pay attention to is just one of the many storytelling techniques that we can learn. And then the last thing I wanted to share about Michael Sandel is that he explores many different applications of the same concept. So for example, he talks about libertarianism quite a bit in both his book and in the justice lectures that he gives. And so he doesn't just stop there and have a lecture about libertarianism and go on and look at another political perspective. Instead, he looks at libertarianism in historical events, in bioethics, in the ways that we compensate people, and in human rights, among many other topics. So he keeps coming back to different philosophies and ties them into current events and things that really matter to us as people. So that's just a little glimpse at the genius that is Michael Sandel and how he so successfully teaches his large classes. Another master teacher of large classes I want to share with you today is Michael Wesch. Mike Wesch, he has been on the podcast previously. He's a professor of cultural anthropology and university distinguished teaching scholar at Kansas State University. He is a phenomenal storyteller. He has had his videos that have been translated into more than 20 languages and have been viewed by over 20 million people. And Mike Wesch has also had his videos featured at conferences and film festivals from around the world. I've talked about it before on the podcast, but if you've not had an opportunity to go visit one of his large class projects, it's called Anthropology 101, or it's shortened to A-N-T-H-101. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. The course is designed around 10 different challenges that students wrestle with during the class. And then they share their learning with a fairly large public that goes well beyond the people who are just formally enrolled in the class. He also engages teaching assistants from all around the world. They have an opportunity to give them scholarships or some sort of financial compensation for their work as teaching assistants. He's had them from places such as Ethiopia, Northern Ireland, Guatemala, Samoa, and Vietnam. And Instead of just focusing on memorization of a set of definitions in the discipline of anthropology, Mike invites us to, and I'm quoting here, a new way of seeing the world that can be valuable regardless of your career path. And this is from his website, his Anth 101 website. He challenges us to see how the structure of his course helps us to put on these new lenses 
And he gives us this simple truth about learning. And I'm quoting here again. You can't just think your way into a new way of living. You have to live your way into a new way of thinking. And here are just some of the things I observe about how Mike Wesch's teaching is effective in engaging these large classes. He centers the class around 10 big ideas and gets us really curious, gets us thinking about those things and and really helps us relate them to our lives. And then he links the assignments for the class around those same 10 big ideas. Although he never uses the word assignments. He doesn't call them assignments. He calls them challenges. And he makes sure that each one of us understand that these things are relevant to us both now and in the future. And he keeps hooking us time and time and time again, both with the wonderful videos he's created as well as with these assignments that really challenge us and get us thinking. He gives students a chance to share their learning in a radically public way. There are different kinds of students. There are some students who are formally enrolled in the course at his institution, but he also opens up the opportunity for people to join in who aren't formally enrolled at all. And so we can share whatever work we might do on Instagram, on blog posts, and on Twitter, among other areas. And so he Mike Wesch extends the learning from Anthropology 101 out to other institutions. He even has a free set of resources that he makes available to faculty who wish to use the materials. He even offers a free set of resources to faculty who wish to use the Anthropology 101 materials. And then lastly, and I could keep going on and on, but I'm cognizant of the length of the episode. Uh, he's, he's absolutely wonderful. And so he, he uses digital storytelling that is incredibly innovative. And he's got an extensive collection of videos, which I'll link to in the show notes. And I wanted to just to remind us all, because sometimes I'll look at his videos and I'll think I could never do something like that. But as we watch them, I want us to not limit ourselves and our mindset. What he's doing is not technically difficult in almost every case that I can see in terms of the actual video editing. But he seems to be a storyteller who is just an iterative person, as in seeing that he's collecting different footage and different ideas, and it's always on a creative path to try to tell even more stories in even more unique ways. And he thinks very differently about how to keep viewers engaged. I hope you'll go check out his materials. The last person I'd like to spotlight in this podcast episode about engaging learners in large classes is Dr. Chrissy Spencer. She teaches at Georgia Tech. She, I went back and looked, she was all the way back on episode 25, but I still think of her so often and so fondly. She was really instrumental in the very early days of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. And one of the big takeaways for me from that conversation all the way back on episode 25 is how she invites her students to become part of a chili pepper population in order to learn about evolutionary processes. And one of the things when we talk about class size, remember, the research is pretty mixed as to does a smaller class size, for example, lead to greater learning And that's not always going to be the case. And sometimes even the preferences might be that students might prefer larger classes versus smaller classes. One of the studies I'm referring to was just sometimes it felt like they had to work too hard or it was too intimate to to be in those smaller classes and they just liked the enjoyment factor of larger classes. And again, 
for every one of these I'm citing, there's something that (laughs) says the exact opposite. But a theme that comes out is around engagement. So even though Chrissy Spencer does teach quite large classes, she really helps students be able to embody the learning. And I do mean literally embody the learning, as we'll hear about in just a second. So she is a big believer in having students do focused group work and to reinforce their learning through means other than just relying strictly on passive listening to lectures. And she has a video, which I'll link to also in the show notes, where she shares about how she helps students learn about a difficult concept by having the entire class turn into chili peppers to see which one of them winds up perishing and which one of them winds up thriving. Some of the approaches that I have noticed Chrissy Spencer using in her large classes are, I mentioned earlier about her literally having the class embody the parts of the concepts that she's trying to teach. So she'll have everyone stand up or hold up a chili pepper sign and there's different varieties of it. And then she'll have these random events happen and see which one of them ends up sitting down or taking their card and putting it in their lap. And she also uses prediction as a means of deepening learning through a series of interrupted case studies. So I've talked about doing this before with playing a podcast for students and then pausing it partway through. And in her case, she's got case studies that get interrupted partway through so she can make sure that that large number of people has the appropriate kind of time pressure to finish their discussion in an appropriate period of time and keep progressing and she can keep track of where everyone is at. She talked about a little bit, if you just did an uninterrupted case study, how people would finish at different times and people may have gotten things wrong and she wouldn't have known along the way. So she likes to employ that approach of interrupted case studies. She is a big believer, like so many past guests, of offering team-based low-stakes assignments to get students to do self-explaining in the classroom. That's an element to enhancing their learning. And one of the things that really inspired me about Chrissy's work is that she has introduced service learning as a part of the course assignments. And then students can experience how what they're learning about in her class has the potential to give back into the local community in some way. And then she talked about on that episode, I can still remember it like it was yesterday, that she believes in bringing something that she loves, in this case, chili peppers, into the classroom and just having that passion of hers be able to spread over to the students. Yes, our emotions are contagious, as we have talked about on prior episodes. And then the other thing that we can take away from Chrissy's inspiration is her careful construction of teams in her classes. She uses a tool called the CatMe Team Maker. And what it does is it allows her to set up certain ways in which these teams will be constructed. So considering things like demographics, preferences, and even considering whether or not a student would have transportation to be able to take others over to the service learning opportunities and make sure that no groups just wind up with no one that would have the ability to carpool over and we wouldn't have too many people without cars in the same group. So this has been a look at different ways in which three experts have made large classes engaging. I'm so thankful to Michael Sandell, Michael Wesh, and Chrissy Spencer for all that you have done for me in my teaching. And also I mentioned James Lang a number of times in this episode as someone who has provided 
the research around these approaches in very accessible ways. And recently, James Lang, he knew that we bought his book, Small Teaching for All of Our Faculty, and was so kind and gracious to come on a quick Zoom Q&A session with us and, and share even more. That was just a delight to get to have him and get to have some of the people from my institution meet him that way. I have a quick announcement to make on a personal slash professional front, and then we're going to get to the recommendations segment. I did want to share with you that I have a new role at my institution. I have been promoted to Dean of Teaching and Learning. And many of you know that I've been in faculty development for a number of years now and have been running our Institute for Faculty Development for a couple of years as well. And in this restructure, they're just pretty much turning the entire university on its head. So a lot of changes on the academic side. We have some new associate deans. And then my area groups together a number of related things all around teaching and learning. So I will continue to lead the Institute for Faculty Development and also Educational Technology. We have a new Director of Teaching Excellence and Digital Pedagogy, David Rhodes, who it's just such a pleasure to have him joining the team. I will also be overseeing the person who leads our library and also our area of student success, the associate dean who leads student success. So the writing center, our director of the writing center, the tutoring center, the supplemental instruction. And I feel like I'm missing some things in my head because I'm doing this from memory. It feels scary to tell this on the podcast in the sense of I'm not sure how interesting this will be to people. I'm going to keep it nice and short, but it has been quite a journey. And I'm so grateful for the pod organization, which I will link to in the show notes as well. I recently met someone who is a person who just got into faculty development and said that's just a wonderful organization to get started. And I was able to go to their conference this past year. And I'm so pleased to be speaking with Katie Linder at the upcoming pod conference, which which will be a great way that I don't get to sit quite as much behind the scenes, but I can be behind the scenes the rest of the time. So I'm excited about my new role. I'm also challenged by it. There's some fear and some excitement and everything in between. And I am grateful, though, to work with some amazing people. And that, you know, makes it all a lot, a lot better when we're doing this as a team and doing some really amazing things. Before I get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to thank today's episode sponsor, and that is Text Expander. You've heard me talk a lot about Text Expander previously on the show. I use it every single time I'm on my computer. And so what happens is I type a series of letters. So I just made the show notes for this episode and I typed in T-I-H-E as in teaching in higher ed, S-N as in show notes. And as soon as I hit my space bar, it asks me, what is the episode number? Who is the guest? What's the podcast category? What's the search engine optimization terms you want to include? What's the meta description for the episode? What are the quotes that were quoted in the episode? What are the resources mentioned? And what are the recommendations? And it's all ready for me to fill in now as I'm recording the episode, what's being recommended and to take notes in, et cetera. And so it could be something as extensive as what I just mentioned, a set of show notes for an episode. It could be the, the guts of a reference letter. It could be as something as simple as email addresses. When I type in D at I-L, that gives me Dave's email address. When I type in B at I-L, that's my 
Innovate Learning email address as opposed to my institutional one, which I pops up if I type in B at VU. And these are all ways of saving time. I get such a kick out of it because they send an email out that says how much time I have saved. And it just brings a smile to my face because I'd rather save that time than spend it with the extra typing. I'd rather spend that time in relationship with others, doing the things that are most important to me. Sometimes it can seem like things will be too scripted this way. I just sent an email today to David Gublar to thank him for being on the episode because as of this recording, his just recently came out. And I didn't stop there, though. The basic elements of the message were there, the link to the episode he was on, a link to the the quote graphics that get produced for each episode. So I can ensure that he has all the information he might want to have about the episode But then I get to take a few minutes and just spend some time for the personal things about what it meant for me to get to talk with him and what an honor that was and that our podcast editor had said what an amazing episode it was. So it isn't like we have to skip out on the personal. This just frees us up to have more time to do that. And then also to not spend as much time composing some of the basics and having to remember now, what should I tell him again? What's he going to want to know about? So that I just want to thank Text Expander for sponsoring this episode. They're such a wonderful sponsor because we're able to afford some of the things like transcripts and the hosting costs for it. In fact, Dave, just Dave, my husband just told me the other day, we're about to bump up to a new level of hosting and get to pay even more for hosting, which he tells me is a good problem to have. But those expenses add up and we're just very grateful to Text Expander for your support of the show. This is the time in the show where I get to make some recommendations. I want to recommend the Associate Dean's account on Twitter. It is a very snarky, very, very sarcastic look at the role of associate dean in an institution. And I'll tell you, when I go and read their tweets, it just makes me chuckle because sometimes we think it's just us, some of the absurd things that'll happen. And sure enough, um, other people experience it. And it's just, a, I, I find it a nice way to sort of de-stress and, and not take ourselves too seriously. So, oh, I'm just going to read one of the ones from August 19th. You can't find a parking spot because the dean parked in the faculty lot to save her reserved spot for her son. Also, he's in your class this semester. And just one more from August 17th, two chairs and directors regarding service. Please let your faculty know that court-ordered community service does not count as service for your annual review. This is a delightful account. It keeps me laughing, and I recommend you check out Associate Deans on Twitter. A second recommendation, and these are in no order, comes from Mike Caulfield. Mike Caulfield has been on the show and is just such a wonderful resource for us in a lot of areas, but in this case, in terms of information literacy. He has released a self-paced three-hour online course on fact-checking. He calls it Check, Please, Starter Course. And that Check, Please is in reference to the kinds of checks that we should be doing when looking at our sources for news and, in fact, checking news sources. And it can be dropped into any course or taken as a self-study experience. And it's the same practices that Mike recommends in his open textbook called Web Literacy for Student Fact Checkers. But he says, we have relentlessly shaved the lessons down to what is absolutely needed. And he goes on to explain that the fact checkers book was good, 
but that sometimes it was a little bit too long for what people needed for their classes. So he's given us these modules and we can assign them to our students and it could be at the beginning of a semester. And then later in that same semester, we could follow it up with more fact-checking specific to the discipline in which we're teaching for a given course. So he also has teacher's notes available that he recommends that we look at and take that into consideration as we plan on how to use this as a resource. Thanks to Mike Caulfield for this amazing resource. And my last recommendation comes from thesweetsetup.com, which as a side note is a great website for everything around applications, productivity, writing, photography, reading, home life, and social networks, just to name a few. And specifically what I'm going to recommend is their sketchnoting guide. You've heard me talk about sketchnoting before on the podcast, and this article, they title it A Guide to Sketchnoting on iPad Using GoodNotes, but a lot of what they recommend would apply regardless of which tablet it is that you're using and regardless of which app that you're using. And I like how they emphasize, you know, let's not worry about whether we're artists or not, and let's not say that we can't keep up while the presenter is going. They have specific techniques that would apply, again, regardless of device or regardless of app, although they do talk about good notes as one that they recommend. And it's just a wonderful post. It's got the tools. It's got some of the ways in which we hold ourselves back from being able to be better sketch noters, and then some tips to help get us started. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 273. If you'd like to visit the show notes for the episode, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash 273. Or if you'd like to not have to remember to go grab them, you can always subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Someone recently emailed me and asked, how do I find show notes for older episodes? All of the show notes are available at teachinginhighered.com. Just click on the podcast and every episode has the extensive set of show notes for that episode. And as of today, all of the transcripts as well for all the back catalog of episodes. So that's an exciting thing. Sometimes it takes us about seven days to get the most recent episode out. And sometimes we are managed to keep up. So check those out and we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.